The fashion industry is one of the biggest polluters in the world. The fashion industry actually makes up 10% of humanity's carbon emissions, drying up water sources, polluting rivers, streams, and oceans. And more than 85% of all textiles go into the dump each year. But there are many incredible fashion brands that are tackling this issue head on by creating fashionable, sustainable, and zero waste products that are making a big impact. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an incredible person who's trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Paola Masperi, the founder of Maya Miko. Maya Miko is an ethical, sustainable, and zero waste fashion and lifestyle brand on a mission to champion a more responsible approach to shopping. Using slow and traditional craftsmanship techniques, Maya Miko works with global artisans from Malawi to Milan to create trans-seasonal women's clothing, accessories, and homeware collections. With a zero-waste policy, the brand utilizes pre-consumer waste reclaimed materials where possible, including cotton dead stock from reclaimed silk, alongside locally sourced artisanal fabric from Malawi, GOTS certified organic cotton and linen. Paula is also the founder of the Maya Miko Trust, which helps Maya Meekin get up and running with training schemes and microfinance projects, which provide funding and teach basic financial and business planning skills. The trust then connects the trainees to fantastic ethical and sustainable fashion brands and designers. This creates links to markets where they can trade their products as high value items according to fair trade principles. I loved this conversation with Paula and I learned so, so, so much from her. But actually, before I get to that conversation, there are a couple things I wanted to share with you. One, I have a really, really fun announcement that I'm actually going to share during the break in the middle of this episode. So you're just going to have to keep listening to get to that announcement. And also, I want to just take a moment to thank our partners of the show that help make this show possible. The first partner I want to thank is Simple Switch. Simple Switch is actually not new to the show because I had the founder, Rachel Coyce, on the show back in the spring. And I actually want you to hear from her a little bit about what makes Simple Switch so incredibly unique. Thanks, Molly, for letting me hop on this episode. Yeah, we are an online marketplace for ethical and impactful shopping. So an Amazon alternative, if you're looking for things to be shipped to your door, but in an ethical way that makes a positive social or environmental impact. I seriously believe that we can shift a bunch of the $600 billion spent online towards companies that are values aligned and that are making a difference in the world. So that's what we're doing. And Simple Switch is offering a discount exclusively for our listeners. So you can check out the entire marketplace on simpleswitch.org and get 20% off your first order with the code purchase with purpose at checkout. That's again, that's simpleswitch.org and get 20% off your first order with code purchase with purpose at checkout. Also, did you know that I have an ethical brand directory? That's what Chelsea used to start finding products for her boutique almost four years ago. Now, Amaz Uma carries over 50 intentionally sourced brands and is the perfect one-stop shop for all your gift giving needs. 
As a thank you to the Still Being Molly community, she is offering 20% off with the code SHOPWITHMOLLY. Head to shopwithmolly.com for all the details. All right, without further ado, on to my conversation with Paula. Paula, welcome to the show. Hello, Molly. Nice talking to you. It is wonderful to speak with you um, across the ocean. That is just something that over, you know, 200 some episodes in, I do not get sick of that. And just the, the, the fact that we can use technology to connect across the world and have a conversation as though we were sitting down with each other having lunch or something. I know, and a nice cup of tea. <laughs> I, I know, you have your tea. I mean, you're in London, so I feel like, I mean, even though you're Italian. Uh, no, yes, yeah. but I've adapted to the local yeah. habits. And here yeah. I am being very American with my good and gathered tropical cherry sparkling water. It looks <laughs> delicious, yeah. It is. It is. We, uh, we Americans, do they like sparkling water internationally as much as Americans do? Uh, I'm not sure as much as Americans, but there's definitely, you know, there's there's definitely enough in the shops, but um, yeah, nothing beats a cup of tea, especially on a gloomy day like yes. this. Um, <laughs> yes. We've forgotten summer, uh, you know, it's all gone now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I was actually thinking about it the other day. I was like, what is it about sparkling water that like Americans like so much? I'm like, because it is everywhere. <laughs> so I don't know. It's... Anyway, so you're having your tea. I'm having my sparkling water. This is going to be amazing. Um, I have actually followed uh, your work with um, Mayamiko for, gosh, I don't even remember when I first came across you guys, probably like four or five years ago. And it's just, you, I just love what you do. So I'm so excited to learn a little bit more about um, kind of you and the, and the history. So I would love for you uh, to just give the Paolo 101. So tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Okay. So my name is Paola. I was born in Milan in Italy and grew up there. Um, your sort of traditional big Italian family, um, just one sister, but lots of siblings and, you know, big family gatherings. I come from a um, fairly feminist family, which I think has sort of shaped uh, who I am. And by that, I mean very strong women in the family, as well as men who have always been very supportive of the women, which, you know, it's sort of, if you think about maybe when my mom was my age, um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, um, that, you know, that wasn't all that common. So I think we sort of got like a really nice um, sort of feminist, uh, you know, streak in our family. And yeah, and I have enjoyed sort of the early part of my life in Italy until then I, uh, when I moved to England for, to finish off my studies and sort of kind of got stuck here in an, the nicest possible way. I lived in um, Germany for a couple of years and then I lived and traveled across a, a number of African countries again for work in the early 2000s. And I think that's where the sort of the... Um, I guess the seeds of what then would become my Amica started to kind of be sown uh, through my through my work uh, during that time, and it was um, work on uh, digital education. So it was looking at how we could um, use um, digital innovation to uh, support the delivery of education across uh, developing countries, particularly in Africa. And and sort of through that work, I got very passionate about the countries that I visited, the people that I met, and the potential that I saw everywhere I looked, um, and sort of beautiful friendships that came out of that experience then created sort of the, the roots of what my amico then uh, was to become. So here I am, 15 years um, on, uh, still loving uh, every minute of it, and um, yeah, with the kind of challenges and the 
excitement that comes with the with the territory and uh, yeah running both Miami Co Trust the charity and Miami Co the label at the same time which sort of keeps me very busy that's fantastic. Now, I, I love that you described how much influence your family had on your just kind of your upbringing and everything that you're doing now. You know, is your family also involved in a lot of either kind of social entrepreneurship or social justice work, anything like that? Um, yes. So I've kind of always grown up seeing these two sides to my family. So there was the day job and then there was the kind of social engagement part. I think for my mommy was a bit more hybrid. So she, uh, she was doing a, a day job that was also kind of social work, but then on the side did a lot of other projects. Whereas my dad is sort of more of a kind of normal day job, but then in his free time, he was very much involved in um, culture, politics, um, social work. So um, I remember when we were tiny, my sister and I, uh, my dad and his friends opened the first cinema in our town. And uh, we got to see all these movies squashed in one little chair, me and my <laughs> sister, on a Sunday. But it was sort of um, a way, I mean, it's quite interesting because I don't actually remember a lot of it. But my dad says that during that time is when um, drugs had become quite widespread and as a no, new phenomenon in, in sort of small Italian towns and the suburbs of Milan where we were growing up and actually felt like the cinema and the theatre were places where you could offer a safe place to some of the youth that would have otherwise, you know, kind of potentially come in contact with, uh, you know, with these new realities. And so um, they saw it very much as a way of uh, both bringing culture and diversity and uh, interesting perspectives through the world of cinema and sort of storytelling, but also creating a safe space for the community, for, for sort of um, sort of teenagers and yeah, they wouldn't otherwise spend time um, elsewhere. So, um, so it's always been part of our life. So my mum, still now, she's in sort of a mid seventies. She actually just turned seventy five not long ago. Um, is still very much active and um, kind of runs an organisation that works with the refugees and asylum seekers and helps them work through all the paperwork and all the permits. So yeah, it's always been part of life. But I've kind of always seen it alongside a day job. So yeah, so I think that sort of um, made me realize that I could actually, you know, travel, live overseas, pay my bills, um, have a day job, and in the, at the same time, in parallel, cultivate more of a passion project, uh, yeah. which, you know, then became what, you know, what I am doing now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I can imagine, I'm, I, I have uh, quite a few friends who grew up in, uh, you know, different countries in Europe and how much, I mean, part of it is just the geography of Europe just kind of lends itself to being a little bit easier to travel, you know, so I love that kind of travel was infused very early on. What initially took you to Africa and what was the connection there? Yeah, so I, so I'd always had a passion and I don't really know where it came from because to be honest, growing up in a sort of suburban Milan in the sort of, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s, there wasn't a lot of diversity in that sense. Um, but I'd always, so my, my grandmother had a, had a real passion for African artifacts and books and music and so there was I think maybe a little bit of that in the background but I can't say that it was um, consciously something that really shaped me although it was a presence that was there and that I really loved and enjoyed but um, I think so when I moved to London I worked for a um, an educational company and um, we were creating software to well, initially to 
teach languages. And then as it grew, it was just educational software. And at the time, we were starting to talk about um, universal primary education for all through the Millennium Development Goals. And so I think I have been in that job for a few years and I sort of started growing itchy feet and I wanted to do something a little bit more. Um, and, and, And sort of one of the suggestions that I made to the leadership of the company was, could we see if any of the solutions that we're working on could apply to an international context so where perhaps things are different from how they are here where we are um, and so through a number of partnerships that we have developed over time um, and through corporate social responsibility um, projects we started working with uh, um, governments across a couple of um, African countries to experiment um, with them and really try and understand whether that technology could support the delivery of primary education and that took me to Malawi, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia. Yeah, I think those are the countries that I spent um, most of my time in, but particularly Malawi and Uganda and of those two, Malawi even more so. And it was a really formative time for me. Uh, I sort of, you know, before that trip in 2003, I hadn't been to Africa um, and uh, I, yeah, so it was a, a very formative you know, sort of experience for me. And and actually, one of the things that I learned very quickly was that I knew nothing. And not that I believed that I knew uh, something, but, you know, you kind of think, okay, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I've seen this develop. I've seen this grow. I've got some ideas about it. But actually, very quickly, I realized that I had to kind of park it all and, and sort of put the not just the ego, but like sort of almost like all my uh, past knowledge to one side and be very, very, you know, have a very listening attitude to um, to everything that was happening around me. Yeah. And I think that was great. I sort of developed fantastic friendships, um, you know, experiences. And, and uh, you know, the, the projects were good and positive. We got some really interesting outcomes that the local Ministry of Education could use to shape the policies. Yeah, and uh, and I, I think it's, you know, I know you, you've been to, to various African countries many yeah. times, but... Uh, you know, for those who might not have traveled to the continent, uh, of course, it's a massive continent. Mm. Countries are very different, you know, between each other. But my experience um, in, in Eastern Africa is just, it's one of those places that gets under your skin. You it absolutely does. love it. You know, I always feel, you know, so I spend most of my time in London, but my family are in Italy. But actually, I always have this feeling that whenever I land into an African airport, I sort of feel at home and I don't know if it's because we are all ultimately from Africa and that feels like sort of that deep reconnection or, you know, just my huge love for, for the place. But uh, I, I have that feeling of, oh, I'm at home and it's, you know, it's great to be here. So Yeah, uh, I have the exact yeah. same feeling. So I completely understand. Now, you know, for people who might not be familiar with my amigo, you know, tell us about my Amico. What is it? Obviously, it's an, we know that it's an ethical and sustainable fashion brand, but what is the heart of it? What, you know, where did you get the idea for it? All of that. Yeah. So I guess maybe unlike other brands that have got a sort of a, a social impact aspect, we had a slightly different journey. So we started off as a charity and then the brand came after. So in 2008, after having spent some time working on this project, I developed a really lovely friendship with a lady who at the time had been both Minister of Education and Minister for Child and Woman Development in Malawi. And you just sort of was starting scheming, as you do, and thinking about what else can we do? You know, can we 
you know, we, we really enjoyed working together and we had similar values and across the years we sort of understood that we were on the same page. And so we sort of started thinking about what else could we do to empower women. And we realized that obviously our passion was in empowering women and we had a similar understanding. We both saw the, you know, that actually more than anything else, women needed um, choices and choices came in different shapes and forms but the way that we understood choices was access to education and access to other things which might be opportunities to trade uh, it might be access to finance it might be sort of th- that concept of having access and so on the back of that we started the uh, Miami Eco Trust uh, in 2008 which is our charity which is sort of still running and the purpose of it was to try and provide those choices to women through vocational training mm-hmm. and also through um access to fairly paid uh, jobs because that would then mean access to finance and that would mean access to a series of other things but i think we were very clear from the beginning that we were not going to make choices on behalf of women we mm-hmm. were just going to equip them with the skills that they told us they wanted and they needed and then it was entirely up to them what choices they made with those skills and with those tools mm-hmm. um, and so at the end of the training that they the women do with us and it's still the same now they had an option to either stay with us and do an apprenticeship and then eventually be employed by us or take out um, a grant option and some microfinance to go and set up their own business. Mm -hmm. Some of them that on their own, some of them wanted to get together in smaller groups and set up sort of smaller co-ops if you like. But, you know, basically what we had was a very open-minded approach to what choice and opportunity meant and we were very clear that every woman knew what that meant for them and so that sort of spirit has um, remained through the years so we're kind of now almost 12 years on Um, so nothing has changed in that approach but what has changed is that we wanted to offer sustainable income opportunities to women and that's where the label came in so after a number of years initially working on the training and skills and um, sort of quality we then were able to set up our own brand and I suppose the desire behind it was that we wanted to create this long lasting employment opportunities but also we didn't want to be dependent on aid and donations not because there's anything wrong with it but we just thought actually to close the circle it would be really good if we had a self-sustaining model that create jobs at the same time and so sort of the the brand kind of came um, a few years later First, very timidly, we experimented with uh, a few accessories and, you know, little things like um, laptop covers and little clutch bags, more than anything, just to test the concept. And I mean, you have to think about this was like 2012, 13, where tentatively we started all of this. And at the time, there wasn't a huge amount of conversation around ethical or sustainable fashion. I mean, there was a little bit, there were pockets, but it was really, you know, even more niche than it sort of has been in, in the last few years. And so it was it was interesting, sort of the kind of conversations we were having with buyers and shop and customers. But actually, what we realized is that going direct to consumers really resonated and customers really loved not just the products, but also the stories behind the products. They liked the guaranteed of, you know, someone making those products that was being treated well and that was being respected for the crafts and for the skills and for the value as a human and all that kind of sort of um, narrative that sort of came with with the brand. And so that sort of um, very baby steps, but sort of reassured us that was the right direction. 
and sort of I suppose the rest is history. We've sort of moved very slowly year by year. In I think it was it wasn't until two thousand and fifteen that we actually launched a very small women's wear capsule. And then since then, we've been doing broad year collection a year. So again, very slow, um, you know, not chasing trends or anything like that, but very much focused on um, both the quality of the products, their longevity, telling the right stories and um, yeah, and just uh, creating products that people love and treasure for a long time for what they look like, but also for the story that they tell. Yeah, there's a couple things in particular that you said that I really want to highlight. And and I mm. think it's that important conversation around um, kind of this distinction, because sometimes there can be a debate about whether or not you should do a for-profit company or a nonprofit, mm. and is charity the right angle? And, you know, in a lot of ways, like, I mean, I very much take the position of, if you can, I think starting a business, a for-profit company is great and the way to go. I am by no means anti-charity, anti-nonprofit. I volunteer and work with a ton of nonprofits. Mm. I am on the board for a couple of nonprofits. So that's not what I'm saying at all. I think, but I think what you have done is a really interesting approach where you, you're kind of coming at it from two different angles and they each have their place. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, kind of nonprofits and for-profit companies can really work together to sort of create this holistic approach to tackling some of these really big global issues. And it's not something that is going to be fixed overnight. It's not something that is going to just magically go away. But when you have different people using different skill sets, different approaches, different tactics, you're coming at it from lots of different angles rather than just trying to be like, have tunnel vision and not seeing other opportunities around you. And so I think it really does kind of open itself up mm -hmm. um, to really getting to the heart of what is the cause of global poverty. And more often than not, the root root, root issue when it comes to global poverty is a lack of economic opportunity, mm, a lack yeah. of jobs. And so one way that you can approach that is to create jobs. So obviously yeah. that's not going to be the end all be all, but it's a big part of it. So I, I think that that's a really important kind of distinction that you, that you made there with what you're doing. Agreed. And I, you know, I just want to be very clear. I also kind of believe in both approaches. I, yeah. I you know, yeah. I think both charities and businesses have got very um, clear roles to play. So, for example, I don't think we could have started the brand had we not taken the charity approach first, because we really need to put a lot of investment in the beginning, training, upskilling, developing the capabilities um, to then put us in a place where we could create those jobs and those opportunities. So we wouldn't be where we are now if we hadn't taken that approach. But I am also very clear that business to be successful needs to be able to take certain risks. And I didn't want to ever risk any of the charity funding for the business venture. And I think that was really the decision to separate the two out because I thought particularly fashion is a very risky industry. You, you know, there's various statistics out there about how many brands make it past 18 months and all that kind of stuff. But, but you know, in general, risk is inherent to business. But I was very clear that I didn't want to risk any of the money that was 
destined for charity projects and for training, for community work, for upskilling and for all the other initiatives that we run as Miami Eco Trust. And so I think now there's more hybrid forms that are, you know, that you can use. So for example, at the time, B Corp wasn't really a thing. Um, and so, you know, I think the times have changed. So maybe if we yeah. were doing this now, we might do it differently. But actually at the time, the choice was the charity and the charity's funds should be safeguarded to do charity work. The business should be allowed to take reasonable risk as a business would. Right. Um, and therefore, it makes sense to separate the two. And then the two had an agreement or still have an agreement where any money that the business makes, it goes back into the charity. Right. So it was sort of almost like an, an additional funding route for the charity. And, you know, now in yeah. time, it's the main funding route. But I think those were the thoughts that meant that we sort of separated the two out. Um, and I think it's also, I guess, less confusing as a narrative for people who kind of... Um, you know, learn about us. So there's yeah. very clearly a charity and there's very clearly a business that yeah. does fashion. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Where did the name Mayamiko come from? So Mayamiko is a, is a Chichewa word and Chichewa is um, one of the languages spoken in Malawi, the main vernacular. Um, and it's a name that is used for both boys and girls and it means praise or thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, other than sounding beautiful and having a beautiful meaning, it, it was also the name of someone that I worked with and also that child. And uh, yeah, for me, just sort of had a, had a very nice ring to it and, and a sort of, you know, as well as the meaning. So That's such a special, yeah. yeah I knew, I was like, I, I know that there has to be a special story behind <laughs> yeah. it. I, I think that that's beautiful. It's funny, often people think it's um, Japanese or, you know, they tend to spell it separately. So Mai and then Miko, it's, it's, sort of, it's interesting to see what people come up with and yeah. that's the true story behind the name. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. I'm going to take a quick break from this conversation with Paula to share something really exciting and also thank a couple other partners of the show. First, are you one of my loyal listeners of this podcast? Have you ever wanted to sport some business with purpose swag? Well, guess what? You can now get my exclusive do something good with purpose on purpose tea through GoX. The design is incredible, but here is the thing. GoX believes in the power of a purchase. They use a simple t-shirt like my business with purpose tea to connect their customers with their apparel makers. GoX customers sustain fair wage jobs that liberate workers from poverty and empower them and their families in communities. They are proud to be a verified member of the Fair Trade Federation. You can shop this really incredible, gorgeous, exclusive business with purpose, sustainable, eco-friendly tea and more with purpose today at goexapparel.com forward slash Molly Stillman. That's G-O-E-X apparel.com forward slash Molly Stillman. This show is also in partnership with the Lemonade Boutique, a women's clothing with a cause store. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know, I love artisan groups and for purpose companies like Elegantees, Starfish Project and Rahab's Rope. And what I love so much about today's partner is that the Lemonade Boutique combines some of my favorite for-purpose companies, plus so much more in one easy-to-shop online store. Plus, if you spend $29, you get free shipping. That is a great way to shop. 
You can shop at thelemonadeboutique.com where your purchase empowers women to take life's lemons and make lemonade. Listeners of the Business with Purpose podcast can save 15% by using the code PURPOSE15 at checkout. Now back to my conversation with Paula. Obviously, um, you know, I will just say that, you know, we are, we're saying this knowing that a few things are happening or, you know, a lot could happen between now and when this airs. But at the same time, like coronavirus is just the thing that we're going to talk about. COVID-19 is what we're going to be talking about for Mm. years and years and years and years to come. Um, I've told my kids many, many times, I'm like, you're living in the middle of history right now. Like, this is not something that is normal. We are going to be talking about this for a long time. We're going to be like, remember that time that we had to wear masks everywhere we went and everything was closed and schools were closed and we couldn't go anywhere. (laughs) Um, So, and this is something that, you know, obviously is being felt all over the world. And we have had a lot of conversations here on the show in the last few weeks about just, you know, obviously this is something that we really are feeling as a collective humanity. But, you know, I will say I ignorantly in the beginning kind of agreed with the, the phrase that a lot of people were saying were like, COVID-19 is the great equalizer. And there was a lot of people that that's that used that phrase, and I definitely used that phrase very early on. And I used that phrase just in pure ignorance of just not really knowing what was what was lying ahead. And we mm. now know, many many months into this, that it is not the great equalizer. And we are seeing statistically that it is reversing a lot of the progress that we had made in terms of um, people rising up out of global poverty. Mm. Um, We're seeing here in the United States uh, that people of color are disproportionately dying from coronavirus compared to compared to other uh, ethnicities. So it is it is not the great equalizer. We all are experiencing it as a huge global collective humanity. Yes. Um, But our experiences with it are going to be very, very different. And I've had a lot of conversations with my friends in sort of the ethical business space and, and how, you know, those who are running businesses where they are working with, you know, artisan groups, or they have employees that, you know, might be living in developing countries, there is this tension. There's a tension to to honor social distancing, to honor all these things. And to, mm. we understand that people are working from home and we all understand, you know, everything that we need to do to keep people safe. Um, and, and we've got to, we've got to, you know, put our focus and all these things. I mean, we're just being torn in 70 million different directions, but at the same time, like we also like, there are artisans who are, I mean, it's literally life or death, whether or not they get paid. Yeah. Um, so it's not just coronavirus, like they'll die of starvation before they get coronavirus. So I know that this has been obviously big time top of mind for you. My Amico even has, um, an entire section kind of talking about the COVID-19 crisis. So I'd love for you to just kind of share a little bit of, of what have you guys been experiencing with, um, COVID-19 in my Amico and what are some of the things that you have been doing to put things in place to, not just protect the business, but really to protect the artisans and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So I think I, I guess I was more acutely aware of this because of my family being in Italy. And as I think everyone knows, Italy was hit very hard earlier on than, for example, the UK or, or the US. And so I think my consciousness was 
aware of this and it was sort of playing in the back of my mind maybe for a couple of weeks longer um sorry um yeah before sort of things really got bad in in the UK and also African countries starting to also respond to this so I think maybe I had the advantage of uh, a little bit more time to think about it yeah but basically yeah um but I think so Malawi responded very quickly so roughly the same time when the UK entered lockdown something very similar happened in Malawi so our training academy closed down we had to send everyone home and uh, sort of social distancing was introduced but as you say social distancing isn't always possible or sometimes it's a question of do you social distance or do you earn a living and I think that's a very very real decision that people have have had to make Um, you know everywhere but you know some places it's been sort of more prevalent than others Um, and you know working from home looks very different in different places around the world Um, and, and I think the other thing is that obviously busy cities busy public transport you know busy markets so it's all not conducive to social distancing but these are the sort of the places where people conduct their day-to-day life and And, and also just to uh, to kind of on top of that point is I had a conversation with a friend who um who does a lot of work in Kenya as well and they do a ton of work in uh Kibera and the Mm -hmm. Mathari slums and she's like you can't social distance in a slum like it's just not possible like it's it is completely irrational to think that that's even possible and yet there are people that are expecting people in slums to social distance she's like you clearly have never been in a slum like it's not it is not possible so yeah I think it's a really important point to make yeah and I think it's interesting because this has really shown how you know we might all be fighting a same or a common enemy but the answers need to be really localized and uh, you kind of a local level really need to own what that response should be because you know best you know how your people live and how what's possible what's not possible so for us um I guess what we we did a couple of things so we knew that prevention was going to be the main answer um you know so trying to protect people from actually catching the virus and I think the government again did a really good job closing borders and shutting down airports and monitoring people that had come in from overseas, you know, as sort of potential vehicle for the virus to come in. So the government acted really fast. Um, From our point of view, we sort of asked ourselves a number of questions. Can we social distance within our own four walls in our own workshop? And actually the answer was yes. You know, we could put sewing machines separately. We could give people hand sanitizer. We could give people masks and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose, okay, fine. But actually the reality is that people need to get to work. And the part Mm -hmm. that was really hard and where we couldn't really protect anyone was on public transport, getting on busy minibuses or, you know, cycling or however people get to us. And so quite quickly we decided that actually we were going to come up with our own version of working from home. So uh, we stopped production of fashion just because we thought that for that, you know, we all love it and we all love making clothes, but actually at the time it wasn't much more important to make masks and potentially hospital scrubs for in case the sort of need arises. And so every one of our artisans was uh, working from home. So I think there's a few pictures on the website and on social media of our own version of the WFH. So that's a, there's a lovely sewing machine in the veranda and, you know, one of our artisans with, a mask working from home and the way we've done is um, our managers have been kind of sorting out the fabrics and then taking it to the cutters the cutters have been cutting it and then we have been delivering to each artisan the amount of work that 
we would have expected them to do in, in the normal kind of workshop context. Um, and then a few days later, the managers did the rounds and collected it, QC'd it, and it was ready to go. So, you know, obviously it couldn't have worked with a full-on fashion production because actually the machines that people have at home are foot pedal and, you know, the stitching isn't of the quality that we need for clothing, but actually for masks, it worked absolutely fine. And it was really empowering that, if you like things that we put in place 10, 15 years ago when we started with the homework in programs, you know, we didn't expect that would come to, you know, to be such a useful thing in, in such an unexpected circumstance. So we kept our teams working from home for about two months and they're now just starting to come back. And we have been sort of donating our masks to the local community. And we got a little delivery that we're shipping off the website with a buy one, give one program. Uh, and everyone has been massively supportive. And, uh, you know, just sort of, I guess, now the masks have become the new normal for, for everyone, or at least, you know, for the time being, people have been sort of buying them and donating the equivalent. Um, so, yeah, it's been a positive experience. We as a business haven't really been able to ship for a couple of months because the warehouse that we partner with yeah. is a social impact project and they also kind of, you know, obviously vulnerable people work there and the right, absolutely right thing to do was to close down. They're now just starting to open up slowly. Yeah. So for me, it was, well, what do we do? We've got this time, we've got these resources. And actually we were supported by uh, Build a Nest, which is an, Amer an organization that works with artisans all over the world. And they helped us get a little fund going to, oh, um, uh, yeah, just to pay for some additional masks, which we donated to the refugee camp. Um, projects that support the elderly, projects that support orphans and street kids. So, you know, we've made the best of this time. I mean, I, financially, it's been tough and I think it's been tough on everyone else, but um, we've managed to keep everyone healthy and as protected as possible. And we now sort of kind of reinvent ourselves again and sort of see where we go from here. <laughs> Yeah, I think that it's really great that you guys are just being so thoughtful about it and really not rushing into things, but then also being realistic that this is, you know, these are livelihoods that, you know, they don't have savings accounts. <laughs> like these aren't people who have IRAs and 401ks and retirement funds. Like, I mean, they, mm -hmm. they are, this is the epitome of living paycheck to paycheck and, and how detrimental that can be. And so I just, I'm so grateful that you guys are are really doing the work and in a lot of ways walking the talk and kind of putting into action in a lot of ways what you've prepared for for years. It's not that for years you were expecting a global pandemic, but uh, but when you got here you're like, okay, we, you know, we're going to be thoughtful about this. We're going to make sure that that our people are taken care of. Um Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think uh, for, you know, this has really shown how small artisan businesses can be really agile. I think, you know, we have been able, and many others have been able to turn things around very quickly and sort of say, okay, we're going to stop business as usual because this isn't business as usual and we're going to do something else, which much larger factories and suppliers couldn't really have done because of the way they're set up. And so I think it's really kind of shown how homeworking, you know, artisan working, independent working really are all sort of signs of agility that us small businesses, you know, can really benefit from, whereas maybe in the past they've been seen as, you know, weaknesses because then they meant that we couldn't grow as fast or we couldn't yeah. produce as much. You yeah. Know? So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a big part of it. That's a big part of it. Well, 
you know, this is obviously something that we could talk a lot about. Um, I just, I, again, I love the work that um, Miami is doing. Your products are beautiful and you're just really, it, it's just really wonderful to kind of see the growth and the changes over the years. Like I said, I've been following you guys for quite some time. I can't even remember the year that I first found you. So to see that, you know, the continuing of, of the growth and, um, and we didn't even talk about the fact that you guys are, um, you know, a zero waste company. So you're not only taking care of people, but also planet and really making sure that you are being good stewards of what you've been, um, what you've been given to take care of. So I just think it's fantastic. And thank you for the work that you're doing, Paula. Oh, thank you. You know, it's great that, that it's great to be able to share it with your listeners. So thank you. Now, this is my favorite part of the show where we transition just a little bit to ask some just fun, get to know you questions. So, okay. uh, Paula, I'm actually very curious for this first question because having grown up in Italy, what was your favorite TV show to watch growing up? <laughs> Ooh, okay, so this is so bad, but so it was Night Rider. <laughs> um, but it wasn't called Night Rider. Yeah. It was called Supercar. <laughs> Supercar. Supercar. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it was, um, yeah, we used to love it. You know, David Asseloff rocks. Anytime, I so. love it. So was it just <laughs> I, like a dubbed over, like in Italian? Yeah, everything was dubbed. So, yeah, the very suave Italian voice and same for the car. Keith, I think, <laughs> was the car's name. So, um, and it was like, you know, very American and very exotic for us. And we loved it. So um, I, I think it probably got to us maybe 10 years after it got anywhere else. That's hilarious. <laughs> but we still it was amazing. Yeah. And so we still remember, you know, when David Asselhoff uh, sang on the top of the Berlin Wall when the wall came down yeah. um, and we were only little kids. And, like, you know, that was like, oh, my God, this is like, you know, Michael Knight singing <laughs> on the top of the wall. <laughs> Super cab. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Okay. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Ooh. Oh my God. Netflix has been a real guilty pleasure of late. You know, Is there something that them. you've watched on Netflix during uh, COVID that has been like your favorite? Yes, so two things uh, that I have been watching before, but I sort of binged on the last series. One is the uh, Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek! Uh, oh my yes! God, it's <laughs> I love it. That's so funny. And then the other one is uh, Frankie and Grace. I love them. They I have are never so seen good. Frankie and Grace, but I've heard it's really good. Oh, it's very good. I, I love the way it just sort of talks so deeply but also lightheartedly about the concept of growing old and growing mm -hmm. old as a woman and yeah I love it and the, the dialogue is so you know smart and witty and yeah. you know both uh, Jane Fonda and Lee Tomlin are amazing so yeah those two I've I've indulged in. That is fantastic. Yeah. Well, I am also a sh fellow Schitt's Creek fan. Uh, <laughs> Moira Rose is one of my favorite television oh. characters of all time. I love her so much. And I will just sometimes like walk around my house and be like, Alexis, <laughs> like I don't even have an Alexis in my house, but I just, Alexis. Um, yes. Oh, that's vocabulary. Funny, yes. It's perfect. Okay. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> um, are you a reader? Did you have any, uh, do you have any books that you're reading right now? Yeah, so I love reading, but I guess like most people, it's uh, it's been a tough time for kind of finding the time to actually read. But I have been reading this really interesting book called New Power, and it wasn't it wasn't uh, prepared, but I just had <laughs> it by my by my desk. Um, which is um, it's nonfiction, and it's looking at how 
the power dynamics have changed over time, particularly mm. in the last 10, 10 years. Um, so from kind of old power to new power. So, you know, the whole power of social media, mm. um, the collective, and it's written by the founder of Giving Tuesday. Um, and also, I think change.org or another one of the oh, of the organizations. Yes, that, I have heard about this book. A few people have talked about it. Yeah, it's very good. I, I'm sort of a sort of halfway through, I'd say, and I would really recommend it. It's really interesting. So it oh, sort of okay. looks at how that has affected everything from political decisions to um, yeah. you know rebranding of all organizations like Lego that went from being a very old power hierarchical organization to a very new power um, organization. So yeah, really recommend it. Very oh, good. good. Well, all right. Excellent. Um, and now I know it is going to be added to my next nonfiction. I've been, um, I've been kind of transitioning, not transitioning, but I've been uh, alternating between like I usually try to read like a, a good kind of hard hitting nonfiction that's really you know educational, really you know stretching my brain. Maybe it's something that a new concept or something I'm trying to learn more about. And then I read fiction. So I kind of yeah. go back and forth and I, <laughs> I give my brain a rest and then I give my brain a challenge and then I give my brain a rest and I give my brain a challenge. So that's really been, but I'm a big, big, big reader. So that is, um, I'm always Aww. looking for new, I kind of devour books. Um, yeah. So that's, I'm always looking for something new. So I'm definitely adding that to my list. Add that to the list, definitely. <laughs> okay. So my last question is, uh, Paolo, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? Hmm. So I think I couldn't do it any other way. Um, yeah. I, I think I've got to the point where maybe with age or experience or, you know, just uh, where to me, it doesn't feel like it makes sense any other way. And I think it's sort of become that, that entrenched in my identity that I can't see myself separated from it. So, you know, whatever happens to my amico and, you know, I hope it sort of lives long and thrives, but um, I think the next thing on my to-do list would be equally purposeful. Um, and I think purpose can mean different things at different stages of your life and different circumstances that you find yeah. yourself in. But I think it is what gets you out of bed in the morning. It is what gets you in sort of a sync with the universe so that you feel you are you know in the right place not necessarily knowing always what you're doing but but giving it your best yeah yeah absolutely uh well paula this has been absolutely uh wonderful to have you on the show thank you so much for joining me and thank you again for the work you are doing with my amiga thank you molly Friend, I would love to know what you loved about this conversation with Paula. Let me know in the comments. Let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And you can use the show hashtag, which is Business with Purpose Podcast. Thank you again to our partners of the show, The Lemonade Boutique, Simple Switch, Amaz Uma, and of course, GoX, where you can get the exclusive Do Something Good with Purpose on Purpose tea at goxapparel.com slash Molly Stillman. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're a first time listener, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring incredible entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you're a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in and week out. And thank you for your support. 
Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, and now we're on Amazon Podcasts as well. Basically, wherever you can get a podcast, we are there. Click that subscribe button, the follow button, whatever the button is there. (laughs) That way you make sure that you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you take a moment to leave a review? Leaving review helps me and others to know what you're liking and how the show personally is impacting you. This show is produced by the incredible team at Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening and go do something good with purpose on purpose.